and John return to their uh, friends, their other believers, their brothers and sisters, as it were, and report back what has happened, uh, followed by their response to the news. And I think what we find could be described as a, as a, as a usual response after being, or sorry, an unusual response rather, after being threatened by the Sadducees to stop spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And I looked at this because I think one response might be uh, that um, you might think that was a close one. When you read it, you'll see, but that was a close one. Sadducees couldn't find any, anything to put them in jail with, to charge them with. And you might think uh, that was close. We got away with that. Another way of looking at it might be, as, as we'll see in, uh, in Acts in these verses, is uh, why stop now? It's just proof that the word needs to go out all the more. The Sadducees are afraid, are in fear of losing their power and the people gaining Jesus. Why wouldn't you go and do what we're called to do? And I do wonder whether we underestimate this moment. They're, they're not worshipping God because they've been freed. They're worshipping God because the power of Jesus' name has been made evident uh, that God cannot be undone by power-hungry, corrupt people. Isn't that amazing? You think it doesn't matter how corrupt, how hungry for power someone is, God will win all the time, every time. And so I want us to get an understanding, and this is, might be a kind of two-parter over these next two weeks as we then look at, uh, as they shared their possessions together. Uh, but the next two weeks, that living in, the, living in spirit and truth is a means by which the living word, Jesus Christ, gets to the very core of our being uh, and not only uh, makes our mind focus on knowing God through the word, but that the word disrupts and changes every, every facet of our being, every, every layer of ourselves, um, that it disrupts and changes continually this side of heaven uh, as a cause in, in us to desire and worship him rightly. And that's what, that's what, that's what living in spirit and truth is. It, it just changes you entirely. It's not an, just an outward change. It's an inward change too that, that promotes, that brings about an outward change. And so really what I, uh, kind of one of the themes of this is uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 15, uh, before we get into the verse, it says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I will say, over these past few weeks, um, I've been taught, uh, just, just hearing from God a little bit of things I've been researching and watching, you know, really trying to get into the Word a bit more, is that it's not about you. It's not about me. Uh, it's about Jesus. And that's very simple. You might think that's a simple thing, but we fall into the trap very easily of things being about us. Uh, and it is, the Bible is about Jesus, and it's all about Jesus. Without Jesus, we wouldn't even have the way to return to God. So it, I've kind of started looking at the word in the context that it's not about me. I know you should always be doing that, and you do try to do that. But more so than ever, I'm reminded, it's not when I look at the word, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about God. It's not about you, it's about God. But along the way, we take part. We do some stuff that God allows us to do. So let's read Acts 4, 23 to 31. Uh, and it says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people <clears throat> and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant 
Our father David, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and, and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city and conspire uh, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. That's good. So, what is going on here? Let's really get into the word here. When we find Peter and John back with their own company, uh, their own people as it were, their own group of believers, brothers and sisters, what we first discover in the reading, uh, reading the verses in context, is that there's a design not to self-congratulate. They're not, they're not saying, oh good, look at how well we did. Uh, they're not doing that here. Uh, they're, not, they're not talking about how they, how they legally manoeuvred really well around the Sadducees' law and rules. They're not talking about that. On being let go, they reported back to their friends what the priests and elders said to them, specifically what I said to them. But I think probably a more a powerful shorthand, maybe, uh, just to maybe give an account as, what, what, what did they say to them? What was it they said? And we can look at that, because we know that, because we can look at the text and see what they said. And I've kind of done this shorthand that says, um, you know, they, they come back, and they're, in the, and they're in this place, in this room, and they go, what happened? What happened to you? What, what was going on? And they said, we were brought to the Sanhedrin by the temple guard, and they asked us, by what power, what name did you do this? And Peter might have said, the Holy Spirit spoke through me and said it was only possible in the name of Jesus. Then they commanded us, they commanded us, and I, I imagine they must be thinking, this is funny, they commanded us not to speak about Jesus. <laughs> That's just never going to happen. We're always going to speak about Jesus. They commanded us not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but through all their threats they could not punish us because people were praising God's name and were unable to override the power and purpose of God. What an amazing moment it must have been to hear this report of the work of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. God displaying his awesome power and authority. But what's the response of the believers to go, ha ha, losers, we've got God on our side. This is what reminded me of when I said earlier that God's on his own side. God does what he does for his glory. So they don't say that. They don't brag. We read in the text that they worship God, that they come back and say, what is the most important thing? It wasn't even that we were set free. It's that we're free now to go and speak about Jesus. So when they heard this, their response was to raise their voices together in prayer to God, not because they stuck it to the Sadducees, but because they were obedient and present in God working in their midst. And they had the privilege by God's grace, not the right to be part of it. But what's really interesting is the way in which they praise and worship God. Amongst all this excitement and celebration of God, they did two things. First, they were together and united in praise. 
with one mind towards the one true God. And we, we know what that looks like because the Bible tells us what that looks like. Romans 15 verses 5 to 6 says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this moment looks like. One mind. And so what's going on here is not that all believers are praying out loud at the same time. They're not praying different things at the same time, as if some sort of chaotic disorderliness. Rather, what's happening is something far more reverent and focused. In the verse we have here in verse 24, it says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now, I've probably said many times, when you read the Bible, especially when you read more of the NIV, you find that there's, there's some sort of incompleteness in the way the NIV presents some of the translation. It's not, it's not bad, it's not wrong, you just have to know that it, you have to know to go and search for it a little bit and find out what, what's really going on there. So it's a somewhat of an incomplete translation here. The original translation actually says, in, in one accord, they lifted up their voice towards God. Now, one accord means that they weren't in one accord speaking, they were in one accord here, in the mind and in the heart first. So before they spoke, they, through the Holy Spirit, they were of one mind, one, they were on the same page. Probably describe it in that way. The difference here is important. This aspect of the text starts to teach us how to worship and praise in spirit and truth and keep those in balance. One accord means to communicate being one heart, in one heart and mind, the inner unity, oneness of heart and mind of a group of people engaged in a similar action. So it, it's more than just praying the same thing, saying the same words or talking, praying about the same subject. It, it's so much deeper that what they pray is, is, all, is all relevant to what they're praying. It's all about the same thing. It's very well connected. They're so of one mind that they're praying about what God wants them to pray about. So first we have a, have a group of believers, first and foremost, that are on the same page. Everyone is in agreement about the purposes and the will of God, the glory of God and the holiness of God. They believe in the fundamentals first of who Jesus is, and together they can then seek in one accord what God wants to do. One mind, one accord. And so as I said earlier, that doesn't mean that they all speak at the same time when they pray to God. The original translation again uses the word voice in the singular what we actually start to see is that one spoke and then they all prayed. They didn't all just lift their voices at the same time. One spoke, one prayed, and then they agreed and acknowledged that. And then they may have prayed individually, but there was an orderliness about it still. We sometimes see this, uh, I've certainly seen it a lot, where there's this sense that somehow there's this, just this crazy um, mess going on when the Holy Spirit comes, that somehow there's a disorderliness to how the Holy Spirit works, and there isn't. Uh, if you look at creation itself, it is orderly. God does things orderly. It doesn't mean we're in a straitjacket. It just means we are ordered because we're in reverence to God. We're not just doing what our, our flesh wants to do. We're not just acting out because I just want to jump around. That may be that we do that, 
but it is only with God first. We take it to God, and God may want us to express that. But there's a certain orderliness and reverence to the way they're doing this. Again, you have to really dig into the text to find this, uh, and, and somewhat overlooked and, and taken on face value sometimes. But one lifted his voice in agreement with him. They will lift their hearts and minds to God. This doesn't mean they prayed exact words, but whatever they did say, acknowledged and honoured the unity of one accord to God. I don't know if I've said, I'm going to say his name right. I think it's Gabelin. He's a, he's a Methodist minister from, I, I can't remember from when, um, but uh, from, from some time ago at least. But he says this, he said, with one accord they lifted up their voice to God. This does not mean that they all prayed at once. That would have been confusion. Disorder in meetings, a number of people talking uh, at the same time in a boisterous way with outward demonstrations is an evidence that the Holy Spirit is not leading for God is not a God of disorder. That is the reality. God says himself is not a God of disorder. <clears throat> in our more uh, charismatic churches, we'll find more focus on the worship and sometimes possibly inadvertently or purposefully it takes priority over the word itself. That's not to condemn, that's just the way we are on the spectrum of churches. As churches that are very, very straight in terms of how they worship, uh, there's as much of just singing hymns out, straight out of the Bible, right through to the other end of the spectrum, uh, which is it's just all about having a good time in worship. Now, we have to find the right balance. Worshiping in spirit and truth means that they're both equally important. And we have to find the right temperature in that. We have to find that, make sure they're both equal in value when we do it. The Bible says that worship, however charismatic or not, must always be done with equal truth. John 4, 21 to 24 says this. Uh, this is the woman at the well. Jesus says, woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the fathers seek. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. <laughs> Only I can see the front door, so... <laughs> Worshipping, as I believe they were doing here in Acts, is a worship rightly with emotion and affection towards God. Nothing wrong with emotion and affection towards God. It is how we, we, we display our love for him. It comes out because we love him because of what he's done. So showing this emotion and affection is perfectly fine, but that comes from a rooted position in the truth, the word of God. We worship, but based in truth, based in the word of God. And what this means is that our own desire to be completely uncontrolled in worship is kept in check by the truth of the word. Do what, does what I pray in worship in the, in the moment of the spirit, does it align with the Bible? Does it align with how the spirit behaves? Does the Holy Spirit will always behave the same way today as it did in the Bible. God will not and has never contradicted himself. Never. So the Holy Spirit will always behave as he has always behaved. It is the one thing that remains constant in this world, I would argue. 
The believers worshipped in spirit and truth. This is explained in what they actually pray out loud when they worship in our verses. Uh, Acts 4, 24 to 28 says, When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, David, uh, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, Jesus whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Let's have a look at this. They pray and worship God. And what drives them is, is not how they feel. There is a sense of feeling in it because they're, they're, they're ecstatic about what's going on. They're ecstatic about what's about to happen, that God's doing something. God's been involved in this situation, so there's an excitement. And that's great. Nothing wrong with that either. But it's, it's not what drives them. They're not, they're not praising God because they feel happy today. They're praising God because they're seeing something working in the bigger picture. God is working to achieve his kingdom. And they've just caught a glimpse of it. They're hearing of the report back. They've just caught a glimpse of God's kingdom. God cannot be overthrown. It's okay to have feelings about God as we profess our love for our Savior. Absolutely, perfectly okay. But praise is not being done because of this particular event. The event may have triggered praise to God, which is fine, but the event itself is not even mentioned. What they begin to do is quote truth from Scripture, spirit and truth. Not only quoting the verses from Psalm 2 in verse 26 of our reading, but they speak of the creator God. They speak from the beginning. God is the creator. Go right back to the beginning. Remind themselves of who God is. The power of God to speak by the Holy Spirit and reference to the true events to conspire against Jesus only to have fulfilled exactly what God had decided beforehand. I've heard many people speaking about the fantastic moments of God showing his almighty goodness and revelation in people's lives through different experiences, and we all have them. And that is a testimony, uh, that is testimony and a great form of evangelism. It's great to tell people about your experience with God. However, I think there's a lesson within this, uh, in this form of worship and praise. When we praise God, and what they didn't do in these verses, uh, what, we are, what we are not trying to remember to ourselves is the good old days. We're not trying to remember, as they, they didn't remember the, 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 what God, or who God is, as in that was a God then and, and now he's a God. I remember the things he did then, wasn't that great, can't we go back to that? They weren't asking for Jesus to come back. They were remembering to themselves who God is and how amazing he is. And what that was doing to them was reminding them just how powerful and amazing God is. What I mean by that is that we can always be thankful for what God continues to do in our lives every day, in every experience. But whatever has happened to bring us here, specifically as believers in Jesus, is for the future glory of God's kingdom, not for the days past. 
When the believers here in Acts speak of what God has done, it's spoken as a cornerstone, a foundation of what was and is to come. All it reminds them is that there's more to come. God has done all that, and he continues to do all this. So the believers then make a request in their prayers for the future work of the gospel, being achieved by God's predetermined plan beforehand. They say, enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. The believers, as I can see it, do not wish God to stop or silence or shame those like the Sadducees. They're not asking God to silence people who do not believe. But in a strange, in a very strange way, that isn't the way the world would work. They're acknowledging that the very opposition is, is further empowering the work of God. Doesn't determine it, doesn't give it any more, but the, the opposition is only serving to show the more, more so the awesome power of God. The opposition all the more emboldened the believers to come back to God first and in that be emboldened to speak his word. That boldness is so that no one is turned away from the gospel. Rather, in his grace, are constantly presented with the gospel despite their opposition. Isn't it a fantastic system the way God has set this up? The more you oppose, the more powerful the gospel is. I mean, that's a very shorthand way of saying it, because God is all-powerful on his own. But it's amazing, isn't it? We need opposition. Otherwise, we get a bit lazy. Otherwise, we, don't, we kind of lose sight of who's important. They do it. The opposition, when we're presented with opposition, we do it in the hope that many are turned to God. But it's not a wishful hope. It's, not, it's a real assured hope. It's something that happens. Uh, for the people who really love science, I like a bit of science. Um, there's, I read an article and I sort of stumbled across it, really. Uh, I don't know if you know CERN, is the people that built the big um, hydrogen collider whatever that was called, um, and they, they, there's this question that they, that's been posted, a very short article, uh, and, and it's, it's a question about matter and antimatter, and you're going to switch off right now. If you, don't, if you don't like science, you're going to switch off, but I found this incredibly interesting. Uh, matter and antimatter are, the, are what scientists say are the key building blocks in development of the universe, but what they found is that there's, there is more matter than antimatter. Most things in the universe is made up of matter from small, plant, small plants to big planets to the universe. The question posed, though, on this particular article was, the Big Bang should have created equal amounts of matter and antimatter, because that's the way we perceive things. They should have an equal and opposite reaction. So why is there far more matter than antimatter in the universe? And so to explain this sort of conundrum, they use an example, which I think helps me to understand, uh, couldn't read the, the technical side of things too much, but to explain this conundrum, they say, imagine the universe as many coins spinning on a table. 
all spinning at the same speed, spun at the same time, all doing exactly the same thing at the same time, spinning at the same rate as each other. As the coins drop to either heads or tails, hello, you should on the whole have half land on heads and half land on tails. Would you accept that? There's 50-50 chance, it probably 52-48, right? So on the whole, you'll get half on heads and half on tails with all the coins spun exactly the same time at the same rate. But to answer this question, they're gonna go, they know there's more matter than antimatter. So they have to explain it using another example. So they keep with the table example. All these coins are spinning, same rate, same speed. And, and this answer, I've got to say, is said with no irony whatsoever. And you'll see why. They said, to explain why there's more matter than antimatter, if all the same coins were spinning at the same rate, the same speed, what would have to happen to represent this, this particular principle that there's more matter than antimatter is that there'd be a special kind of marble that caused every coin to land on heads and was rolled across the table it would cause more heads than tails to appear. Now, they said with no irony, they said it's an unknown thing. This marble is special. They don't know what the marble is. Apparently, they really can't say the word God, but they don't know what the marble is. And they say this marble purposefully is designed to turn these coins that it hits onto heads. So what you end up with is that there's more heads than tails, more matter than antimatter. And I will use this quote from their article because it is just amazing. Short of saying there's a God. In the same way, some unknown mechanism, unknown mechanism, that's what they're saying, could have interfered with the oscillating particles to cause a slight majority of them to decay as matter. An unknown mechanism. Why am I talking about science? Why am I talking about matter and antimatter? The attempt to suppress, antagonize, and take an anti-God, anti-Gospel position only serves all the more to make it more possible for people to come to God. Opposition emboldened believers and further cemented their hope of faith in God, so worship God for that. I'm so glad we don't worship God as the unknown mechanism. It doesn't sound right to me. Oh, holy unknown mechanism. It's just... But you remember that these believers in these last few chapters came to repent and believe in Jesus, even though Peter had identified them as being part of the very people that vilified Jesus on the cross. These people who are now worshipping and celebrating were in opposition to Jesus. And look what happened when Peter told them the truth. They came to Jesus. Opposition made it even more powerful to hear the gospel. In their opposition, truth exposed their sin and brought them to Christ. As they become more opposed, so the truth of God's word became ever more powerful in exposing the fragility and futility of their opposition. Isn't that great? It almost, God works in a way through the gospel that it, it keeps minimizing this opposition to, to 
to decay erode this false truth that the world has somehow come together in a lucky accident. That we are here today because of some lucky fluke. But there is another side to this, and it, it speaks into God's sovereignty. It's also true is that many people will not see that fragility or futility in their opposition to God. There is a point at which that they may not ever come to the Lord. When Pharaoh uh, first hardened his own heart, he went in opposition to God. God gives Pharaoh five opportunities to repent and humble himself. There's really good articles on how, uh, particularly in the first five, um, the, fir- the first um, five plagues, as it were, um, that actually what is really being said is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It's often sometimes misunderstood that God did that first. Actually, Pharaoh did it himself to begin with. But Pharaoh, he, he pushes further and further into it. I knew this would happen when she got walking. <laughs> no, it's great. <laughs> no, don't worry. Don't worry. Let her run around. Don't worry. But Pharaoh, he pushes further and further into it. Uh, when this self-hardening, so this is where the limit comes. When this self-hardening starts to or potentially affects God's plan and purpose, that same hardening was used by God to continue and further the plan and purpose of God. Does God do evil? No. Will, will there be a point where our own evil is used against us? Possibly. God will expose that to us. If it, if it doesn't, if it's not part of his plan, it will be part of, he'll make it part of his plan and it will serve his plan. So then what we see is Pharaoh being hardened further. Really useful on the Bible project, it says this, the fact that God can steer evil towards his purposes does not mean he engineered it. Pharaoh is responsible for his own evil, just as Joseph's brothers were. However, there is no force of human evil that can resist God's purpose to bring salvation and blessing to all nations. In other words, everything is for God's glory and by his will. Just like in the example of matter and antimatter, the marble will do what it has come to do. It is only by the grace of God that we can be turned on our heads and come to God or reject him and turn on our towers and run. You see, when the believers worship and praise God, it's really to understand and accept the authority and majesty of God himself. It is the truth of the word that we should treasure in our hearts that will continually hold us to account for what we do, how we live and how we worship God. To live in spirit and truth means to allow the Holy Spirit and God's truth in the word to permeate, influence, shape and purpose every facet of our lives. I'm glad you're loving this message, Alice. Great. So it's the last few things. What does it mean to live in spirit and truth? It means that we no longer live for self, but for Jesus. It means that we continually seek one accord, one mind, and glorify God as we lift our voice to him. That when faced with opposition, we give glory to God all the more and pray for boldness in speaking the word of God all the more. 
that ultimately we trust that whatever, whether people come to the Lord or remain steadfast in our opposition, we trust God does all things for the purpose of his will and his glory alone. Trust in God's way to make the right decision, to make the right choice, even if that's something we might disagree with. As Christians, we submit ourselves to the authority of God. Whatever he decides is what is true. So I'm going to leave you with um, a Spurgeon quote, but it's quite a long one. Um, So I'm just going to read it out. It's not on the screen. Um, But I think it's relevant. It's for another verse, another sermon that he did. Um, But I think it's relevant to this. He says this, and and excuse the kind of oldie-worldie language. But anyway, he says, Oh, that Jesus may make some new who are here this morning. I've laid the axe at the root of the tree, and every tree that is here must be hewn down and cast into the fire, unless Christ changes the nature of that tree and makes it bring forth fruit into righteousness. I've tried to show that man is utterly ruined in himself. He's become like the ruins of Babylon, wherein wherein dwell hideous dragons and all manner of loathsome creatures. I will even liken him to the troubled sea, whose waters cast up mire and dirt, wherein Satan dwells as a Leviathan, Leviathan, got there. And with him creeping things, uh, immunable things, obscene and horrible. I've tried as far as I could to preach the old and fashionable truth, and I expect to be hated for doing so. But now over all there there comes the proclamation of mercy, to wit that God is in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their inequities, and whosoever believe in him shall be delivered from the mischief of the fall, and lifted to dwell where God is in perfect purity and happiness. What a wonder is this choice mercy. That a den of dragons should become a temple of the Holy Ghost. What a wonder that the heart through which blasphemy raved which, uh, should become a soul in which grace reigns. That the profane mouth should become the organ of holy song. Oh, what a thousand wonders that the black heap of human nature, that dunghill of the heart, should yet be made pure as alabaster, glittering in holy light and bright with heaven, shining like pure gold, like unto transparent glass. And that the Holy Spirit himself should dwell where the devil dwelt. Know ye not that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost? What wonder, once they were temples of lust, of anger, of evil speaking, of blasphemy, and yet they can be, and I trust now are, the temples of the Holy Ghost. Oh, marvellous, marvellous, let us bless God and ask that we may realise in ourselves this wondrous miracle to the praise and glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Isn't that amazing? doesn't hold back does he thank you Alice for agreeing with me it is amazing I'm going to pray and we're going to have some worship time together Lord we want to thank you that um, that there is no opposition that can beat you that can overcome you that will never overcome you that your power is, is the authority. And so, Lord, I want to pray that when we're faced with this opposition, when we're faced with these, uh, however extreme that opposition is, that, Lord, we look at it in this kingdom way. 
that if you desire it, Lord, you will change people. You will bring about opportunity, something in that opposition that may give them a glimpse of Jesus. Give them this chance, this opportunity, this choice to accept the mercy of God. We thank you, Lord, that you continually give mercy, continually give grace, that many people, we hope and pray, come to believe in the one true God, in Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and died for our sin. For what we didn't deserve in ourselves but that Jesus took on himself as a substitute so that we may live as Jesus lives. We thank you, Lord, that you uh, love to hear our worship, our praise of you, and Lord, that that is and can be exciting. And so, Lord, I ask this, Lord, do you want more opposition to us as your followers, believers, so that we may be ever more sharpened, so that more people will know that we are different in what we believe to the world, that we are no longer controlled by the world, that our minds are now set free in Jesus Christ, that our soul, our spirit, our very being, everything is set free in Jesus. Lord, teach us and continue to teach us in your word. Sharpen us. Get us ready for the opposition, whatever that may be, in the hope that they may become believers and followers in Jesus. As we, had to, we did, Lord, when we repented and trusted in Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Oh, what a life awaits them, Lord. We ask that you do this in the power of your name. Amen.